My name is Matt Blackwell. I serve as the uh, South Campus Pastor here at the Austin Stone. Uh, And this morning as we started our time together, uh, we heard from the book of Revelation. And we did that on purpose because we wanted to start with the end in mind. We wanted to start knowing where it is that we're going. And so we read that verse that there is coming a day when he will wipe away every tear from our eye and there'll be no more crying and mourning and pain and death. Because when you start with the end in mind, it gives us the strength and power to actually make it through the life that we're leaving right, li- living right now. And so our hope is that we would see that. And my hope this morning is this, is that as we open God's word together, that we would begin to lean forward, trusting that God has promised and is faithful and powerful enough to, to make good on that promise. That there is coming a day when that will happen. So that's my hope for us, is that we would live with the end in mind, and that changed the way we live. Uh, I've seen this kind of work out, this idea that the, having the end in mind work out uh, for the way that you live in my TV viewing habits. And so I uh, am convinced that the DVR is probably one of the greatest inventions of all time. It's like light bulb, automobile, DVR, maybe not even in that order, I'm not sure, but I love me some DVR. Uh, and so my kids love it too. It's changed the way that my family wastes time. And so my, my youngest uh, came to me just a while back and he had this look of alarm on his face. And he, uh, he was three and, and he said, Daddy, you'll never believe what I had to do. And I said, oh my gosh, he's three. That could be anything. Like he could have eaten something, grow. I don't know. I'm like, what? He's a, I had to watch a commercial. Oh my gosh, no. The agony, right? So DVR has changed our life. And so I'm a huge sports fan. Um, I'm from Dallas. And so I'm a big Cowboys fan. And um, both of us uh, in the room are Cowboys fans, apparently. So, uh, so that, that got that going for us. And so, uh, but it's changed the way I watch sports. And so, you know, doing what I do on Sundays, sometimes I'm not able to go and watch uh, football games, but a lot of times in the evening I'll, I'll turn on the, the game and get to fast forward through the commercials. And normally, you know, mo- most of the time, by the time I watch the game, uh, I kind of already know who won. And so uh, I can remember there was a game a couple of years ago where the Cowboys were playing the Buffalo Bills. And it was one of those games that was marked with misfortune and mistakes. And Tony Romo, the quarterback for the Cowboys, had thrown six interceptions. And uh, at one point they were down by eight. Um, and uh, they were down by two in the fourth quarter, and, and Tony Romo threw another interception. But I knew that the Cowboys win the game, and, and so I'm watching this going, how can this possibly be? So instead of despairing and turning off the television, I'm leaning in going, this is going to have to be miraculous. And so sure enough, they get the ball back, and with uh, two seconds left on the co- clock, they kick a 53-yard field goal to win the game. And so my emotions during the game were one of excitement because I knew that with every mistake, with every fumble, with every interception, with every penalty, something great is going to happen in the end. Like they're going to win. I already know the end and so it changes the way I view the entire game. So I didn't turn off the television. I never despaired. I never gave up because I knew that there was victory coming. And church, we have victory coming. That there will be a day when victory is assured and it comes to fruition and we stand in the very presence of God. That is our end. So how do we live In the meantime, to not despair and to give up, but to hope for the future. And so that's where we want to be this morning. We've been in uh, Mark's gospel for a while. We took a little break the last couple of weeks for our biblical 
manhood series, but we find ourselves back in the book of Mark. Uh, And so we're going to start in Mark chapter 12, verse 18. It says this, And the Sadducees came to him who say that there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question saying, Teacher, Moses uh, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, left no offspring. And the second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third likewise. And the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as wife. And Jesus said to to them, verse 24, Is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God? For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob? He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. And so here we see uh, yet another time in uh, Mark 11 and 12. We've seen all of these leaders coming up to Jesus with all these questions of his authority. uh, And they are trying to to take him down. And so we see this other group, this final group, come up to him with a hypothetical question. And the hypothetical question is this. So say there's these two people. They get married. This guy has six brothers. Uh, there is a law in the Old Testament that says if he were to die and they don't have any kids, that the next brother in line, if he's single, would marry the woman. And so the one guy marries her and he dies, and the second guy marries her and he dies, and the third guy marries her and she di- he dies, uh, and then on and on. I'm like, if I'm the sixth or seventh brother, I'm like, I don't know about Black Widow over here. I'm not too sure. I kind of want to do this thing. And so seven brothers die and then eventually she dies uh, and they come to Jesus with this question. So in the resurrection, who is married to, to, to this woman? Which one of the brothers? And so it's interesting and important for us to recognize this, that this group of people, the Sadducees, are the people that are asking this question. It is this civic, political, religious group of elite leaders and they have a couple of beliefs that that will play into their question. Mark tells us one of them right here. He says, the Sadducees who say there is no resurrection. So that's kind of what these people are known for. They believe in two things. One is the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, uh, the books of Moses, were the only books that they said were holy books. That's the only ones that counted. And secondly, because they didn't see the resurrection or an afterlife talked about in those uh, books, they said there is no afterlife, there is no resurrection. And so the problem with these people is that they sort of pick and choose which parts of the Bible to believe in. They say, we only want the five books of Moses. We don't want all that prophetic and poetic stuff. We just have these. But secondly, because they didn't believe in an afterlife, they believed that this world was all that there was. They lived for reward, but the reward was here on earth. There was nothing to come. And so that's the way they lived. They pick and choose which parts of the Bible to believe in. And they don't believe in an afterlife. And so they lived as if this world was all there was. And so I'm reading that this week. And, and as I'm reading that, I begin to judge these people harshly for their question of Jesus. Only to come to realize, how often is that me? I mean, how often am I a Sadducee? That sort of looks at the Bible and says, you know, I, I don't know if I'm going to buy all of this. 
I mean, do I ever come to the scriptures sort of picking and choosing which parts I want to believe? Or further, do I come to God and say, uh, really, I don't know if I can trust that there is anything to come. If there is this afterlife or this resurrection, do I really live uh, more like a Sadducee than anything else? Because I think uh, what, what we do is we often believe, like Christians, that there is heaven, but, but we live like Sadducees, as if this is all there is. We believe in heaven, but we live like Sadducees. And so here's what Jesus does. Verse 24, he answers their question. He says to them, Is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. So I, love, I love the fact that Jesus is very upfront with them. Number one, you're wrong. He's not like playing games. He says, you're wrong. Let me tell you why you're wrong. Because you don't understand the scriptures and you don't trust and know the power of God. These are the two reasons that you're wrong. You don't know the scriptures and you don't know the power of God. And then he goes on to prove to them from the portions of the scripture that they actually did believe in from the Pentateuch. And he proves out the resurrection. Verse 26. It says, as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses? Which, by the way, would be a sort of a slap in the face to the Sadducees, who many of which had memorized all the, the five, first five books of the Bible. That's like including Leviticus. They memorized that. It's the way they spent their time. So to say, for Jesus to say, have you even read this? Of course they've read it. Have you not read in the passage about the bush how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob? And so here's what Jesus is doing is he goes to the portion of the Bible that they did believe in and he proves out the resurrection. And here's what he's saying. He says, remember when God says, I am the God of Abraham? Well, he's talking to Moses at that point. God is talking to Moses in the book of Exodus. Now, Abraham had been dead for 500 years, but God speaks in the present tense. So what Jesus is saying is that God is the God of these dead because there is a resurrection. That has happened. So he's not, he wasn't the God of them before. and Now he no longer is, but he still is their God. He is the God of the living. And so Jesus comes and confronts the error of these Sadducees head on. Now, why would Jesus question their belief in the scripture and their understanding of the power of God? Why, is it that, why does he answer that question when it is, they come to this question about a hypothetical marriage and he says, you don't know the Bible, you don't know the power of God. And here's what I think what Jesus is doing is he says, number one, if you don't believe that there is a future, if you don't believe that God has spoken of a future, and you don't believe that God's powerful enough to bring that future about, of course you don't believe in an afterlife. I mean, if you don't believe that, that the word of God says there is a coming future, and you don't believe that God is strong enough in his strength to bring that about, then you will live as if this world is all, yours, is all there is. This is the most important thing. This is what I know. This is what I trust. I, I like the food. I can taste it. I know it. And here's what I think we do oftentimes. Like most of us, we're pretty proud of the city that we live in. And we talk about it all the time. Uh, we, we, we brag about it to our friends in Dallas and Houston. And we mock them. Uh, and we say, we love the food here. We've got great food. We've got the lakes. You've got the hills. You've got kayaking and uh, paddle boarding. And, and all the great things that we love about. We love Austin. And so we take this idea that we know which is our life here in this great city with these great people. And we begin to compare that to 
our ideology or our understanding of the, the age to come. So 85% of Americans believe that there's an afterlife. But if we were to poll most of us or many of us in this room when we were to ask and, and press in, well, what would that look like? We'd get a little hazy on that. And we would say things like, uh, well, I'm not exactly sure. I kind of think of heaven as, uh, I mean, it's clean and neat and kind of well lit. Um, lots of clouds. You kind of walk in the gates, maybe pearly or golden, and you get your standard issue white robe. Thank you. You know, everybody has the same outfit on. That's cool. You don't have to worry about your clothes for eternity. Uh, and so everyone gets a, 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 their own personal cloud, and you sort of get a cloud and a harp, and you just get to play forever, right? And this, that doesn't sound all that great. I mean, it's not all that compelling if I say, okay, you can have tacos, and kayaks and the people that you love or a harp and a cloud, we're like, I don't know, I'm supposed to lean for this and long for this and hope for this, but I don't even know what that's like. And so all of a sudden we say, we don't long for that. We don't want for that. We don't ache for that because we want this. And so we believe like Christians, but we live like Sadducees. We live as if there is only this life. But man, that changes the way we live and, it, and because part of the reason is we don't trust God's word or God's power to accomplish his word. So we live oftentimes like these people that are questioning Jesus. And here's where the error comes. If we think that this world is all there is, we find ourselves falling into one of two errors, one or two ditches on either side of the road. If we think this world is all there is, some of us will fall into the error of hedonism. And we'll say all we want, we just want to get as much pleasure as we possibly can. We want to get as much comfort as we possibly can. We want to get as much money to buy as many things so that no one can bug us because this world is all there is. And so we want to enjoy it to the full. Carpe diem, seize the day. This is it. This is all we get. So let's have fun. We'll find ourselves using the motto, if it feels good, do it. Or maybe you find yourself saying a phrase like, well, I don't know, it just makes me happy. Even though it's in direct opposition to the word of God, you say, this makes me happy, so I'm going to do it because you've fallen into the error of hedonism, saying this world is more important than anything else. And so we try to get as much pleasure as we possibly can. But there's this other ditch on the other side of the road, and some of us fall into this ditch. This is the ditch of hopelessness. We say, if this is all there is, then there's no meaning, no value, no point. These are the philosophers and poets who, who despair and who, who are weighed down by the hopelessness of all that is. And these folks say, well, there's no assurance of a future. So the people who struggle with hopelessness say there's no assurance, but the hedonists say, well, no, there's no consequences. So let's go and get all that we can here and now. And so we find ourselves battling with this. If this world is all there is, either get pleasure or, or drown in hopelessness. But Jesus answers in a unique and different way. And he answers their question in verse 24. Let's read this again. In verse 24 it says, Jesus said to them, For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses in the passage about the bush... How God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He's not the God of the dead, but of the living. And so Jesus answers the question of no, no future in, in very specific ways. Jesus is going to answer their question theologically and relationally. 
He's going to answer their question theologically and relationally. He makes this profound statement in verse 24 that we just read. He says, for when they, ra- they rise from the dead. So this is the, the words of Jesus assuming the, the resurrection is a reality for people. You see, he uses the exact same line that the Sadducees brought in. So they come in with this hypothetical situation about which they don't even really believe in. And so you can almost hear the kind of the tongue-in-cheek question that they bring. So there's all these seven brothers, they're married. So in the resurrection, Jesus, in the afterlife, what's going to happen here? And so there's this mocking tone, and here Jesus says, no, when people rise from the dead, he speaks directly, theologically, making an assumption that humans will rise from the dead. There will be a resurrection for humanity. And so he states it very strongly. Not if, but when this is going to happen for us. And this is a New Testament teaching. It's clearly throughout the New Testament we see that people, humanity, will rise in some, in, in some way. Not all will rise to blessing, but all will rise. Some will rise to eternal life. Some will rise to judgment. And for those who don't believe in Christ, who have not come up underneath the grace of Christ, that day will be a day of despair. But for those of us who have trusted in Christ, who come up under the banner of the cross, our death, the perspective that we have on death, absolutely changes. It's not a day of despair, but a day of hope and one to rejoice in. And so the New Testament talks about this idea of resurrection over and over again. Jesus himself says it in John 11. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians says, For as by a man came deaths, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. The Apostle Peter in 1 Peter, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. And so the New Testament, from the words of Jesus and the Apostle Paul and the Apostle Peter, constantly are teaching the same refrain that there is coming a day when our bodies will be raised from the dead. And so Jesus is theologically challenging the assumptions of these Sadducees who don't believe in a resurrection. And he is saying there will be a day when because of the resurrection, sin is no longer our identity and death will no longer be our destiny. But we will be victorious in Christ. And so theologically he is pointing them to that day. But I think maybe even more importantly is relationally he begins to answer a pretty big question. And for what many of us, as we read this the first time, we we might have asked the same question. And so Jesus goes on to say, when they rise from the dead, they are neither going to marry nor be given in marriage. And so the question that we ask is, so is there marriage in heaven? Like, what's that going to be about? And so Jesus is clearly answering a question that, that maybe some of us have had. And so the initial thought here for some of us is, man, to think that there's no marriage in heaven... That my sweetie, my spouse, the one that I've given life to would, would no longer be my spouse. That doesn't sound like heaven. But I, wanna, I want you to understand a deeper reality of what is going on in eternity. So Jesus says, yes, there, there will be marriage in heaven, but it won't be human marriage as we know it now. Remember Ephesians 5? We talked about it a couple weeks ago. Matt preached on Ephesians 5 as the purpose 
of marriage is to be a signpost to a greater reality. And so our marriages are to make us holy and to point to the loving, kind relationship that humanity has with Jesus, with God. And so what we have in marriage is a picture or a sign of a greater reality of a love that God has with humanity. That's the purpose of marriage, to point to that. And so that's why we don't need marriage in heaven, because we have the real thing. And so it'd be like this. So, so my family, um, Shannon and I, we've decided, so we've got three little boys, decided that we're going to go to Colorado this summer. So we're going to load up the family minivan and drive through what's beautiful this time of year, West Texas and New Mexico. Uh, we're going to go through Lubbock and Amarillo and into Raton. And then if you've ever made that trek, you come up over the hill and, uh, and you come into Colorado. There's this big sign that says, Welcome to Colorado. And so if we make that trek and we stop at the side of the road and we get near the sign, we pull the van over and we hop, hop out and get the kids out. and We say, go stand up against the sign. We're going to take some pictures. So we take pictures of them by the sign and they're, they're hugging the sign and they're hugging one another by the sign. And then we say, okay, get back in the van and then we're going to go back to Austin. We saw it. It was awesome. No, it'd be ridiculous because the sign points to a greater reality. We don't go to visit the sign. We go to visit the state. See, the, the sign points to something that is even greater. And the purpose of marriage is to point to a new relationship that the church has with her husband. And so that's the point of marriage. And so when Jesus is talking, he's talking relationally to the people, saying, look, there is no marriage like you understand marriage because there is a greater reality between the relationship that you have with God. So the question that popped into my mind was, so what does that mean for human relationships? Do we know one another? Do we recognize one another? Do we, do we even care that other people are there because we'll be so enamored with God? Uh, I think that we will know and, and, and have enriched, enhanced relationships with one another. And the way that I get to that conclusion is before the fall in Genesis chapter 3. Remember Adam was created by God. And what did God say? Well, it's not good for man to be alone. Let me create a helper suitable. So he creates Eve. Before sin ever entered the scene, human relationships was a part of God's initial design. And so in heaven, that's a part of the initial design, but, it, but it's new and renewed and redeemed. And so no longer is there strife and, and heartbreak. But you and I, now we have the fruit of God's spirit. And so our relationships are enriched by the fact that we have, as Galatians 5 tells us, the fruit of the spirit is love and joy and peace, and patience, and goodness, and kindness, and gentleness, and self-control. And these would be the markers of our new relationships with one another. And so that is a day to look forward to. And something to hope for. To be in that type of relationship with one another. To be in that type of relationship with God is not something to, to hold lightly. But it's something to look forward to. And I think what happens for us is this. Is that if we live with, the, with only the picture of now in mind, we'll find ourselves not hoping for the future. But if we live with eternity in mind, it's going to be the antidote to both hedonism and hopelessness. Because if we, if we trifle around with some of the pleasures that we can find here on earth, it, they pale in comparison to that which is eternally ours in Christ in heaven. It's like we, we, we settle for the sandbox when there's the beach available, 
Right? These, these things are only pictures of what is to come. And so hedonism is, is no longer our, uh, the way that we live because there is a hope of a better joy, a better pleasure that will last forever, that will be true and right and good. And so we, it, we don't live here in hedonism any longer, but we hope for a better pleasure. But it's also the answer to, to our, our hopelessness. And see, we we trust that there is a better future to come. And so we don't weight down by the despair and say there is no hope, there is no future, there is no point. No, there is a point. We're going somewhere. We're guided by Christ to that place. And so we long and we wait for it and we hope for it. But knowing this, that life happens, that kids die, that cancer strikes, that adultery tears, tornadoes destroy, thieves Steal, sickness disables, savings disappear, and death comes. And we know that this life is not all there is. But there is a hope of a future. And so hopelessness is not the way that we exist. We, we, we live anxiously for the future to come. And hedonism is not the place that we live because we live for a better pleasure to come. I love the way uh, Randy Alcorn in his book called Heaven talked about that idea. He said, look, you should seek happiness where you can actually find it in the person of Jesus and in the place of heaven. So that's what we long for. That's what we hope for. I love the way uh, Charles Spurgeon talks about this idea. He says this. He says, to come to God is to come home from exile. To come to land out of the raging storm. To come to rest after long labor. To come to the goal of our desire and the summit of our wishes. To come to, come to God is to come home from exile. Now, I've never been in exile, but I've been uh, traveled different places. I had the opportunity one time to go to China for a couple of weeks. This is a couple of years ago. And so I was gone for two weeks from my family, uh, and I remember just I couldn't wait to get home. I couldn't sleep the night before. I wanted to get on the plane and get home. But just in case you're geographically challenged, China is a far away from Austin. So it was like, it was like a 28-hour expedition. And so uh, three or four different airports and layovers and a massive time change. And so I get, finally get on the plane in Beijing. Uh, and I had that wonderful seat that's right up against the bathroom that leans back like this much. And you're like, awesome. I'm going to get a great night's sleep tonight. Uh, so right up against the bathroom, there's a baby in front of me. Great, all right, here we go, Good. headphones on. And so we, we, uh, we get out onto the tarmac and we're heading home. Only to realize there is about 100 other planes on the tarmac at the same time. And so for whatever reason, we get in this traffic jam uh, and the pilot comes on and says something in Chinese, which I didn't understand, but uh, eventually I kind of figured out. But basically there was a, uh, a traffic jam because of weather. So we had to sit in line. We couldn't go back in because then we would lose our spot in line. So we had to sit there, which I think it was like two or three hours. It seemed like forever. So the, the crazy thing is, is that they had to turn the ignition I don't know how a plane works, like turn the key and pull out the key or whatever it is. And so they turn the thing off, means no AC, no plumbing for two or three hours with the baby crying in front of me, my seat not going back. And I'm like, you've got to be kidding me. I need to go home. Like I want to go home. That's my hope. And I, there was never a point at which I'm sitting on the plane going, now this, this is now my new home. Like, I'm just going to pull down the little thing, and this is my, now my kitchen table. I'm going to live here. 
No, I don't have that. There's a new place. There's my chair and my table and my family and my wife with my boys and they're waiting for me and I couldn't wait to get there. But with every delay, with every layover, with every airport meal, I long for and ache for and lean forward because I can't wait to be home. And I can remember coming down that long escalator at, at Austin Bergstrom uh, right there by the baggage pickup and I, I lock eyes with Shannon and she had some time, somehow in the chaos of the world put, figured out how to get a dress on and makeup on and there's three boys, well, two of them are running in circles and she's holding one of them and we catch eyes and I remember just the joy of being home. And so I embraced my wife and I embraced my boys and they're squealing with the delight of having dad back and I get to go home and I get to sit in my chair with my TV and my DVR and I get to do whatever it is I want to do. And I want you to remember this, y'all. Church, there's a day. There is a day that you will be able to circle on the calendar where you will walk into the presence of God and the one who has loved you before the foundations of the world will welcome you in. Like that is our reality, that is our hope, that is our longing and our leaning. The scripture says it like this, that the one who is mighty to save will sing over you with loud songs of rejoicing. You think the songs in here, I mean, I'm up against this giant speaker and my hair is, what is, is kind of going back. Like the, the, the voice of God, the sounds of God will sing over you with rejoicing. There will be a day where that happens. My hope for us is that we don't waste our lives with trivial pleasures, assuming that this is all there is, nor do we waste our lives with hopelessness, but we trust that God's word has said there is that day coming. And we trust that God's power will accomplish his word. That we don't live like the Sadducees who don't know the word of God or the power of God, but we say, God, we trust your word and we know your power. And so we lean forward longing for that day when you will be the God of the living. When we will enter into that rest. God, we long for the day where you will take us home. God, may that be a sweet day. But until then, let us live in light of that reality. Let's pray together. This is a prayer that I found in a book called The Valley of Vision. It's a book of Puritan prayers and it's a prayer about our longing for heaven. It says, O Lord, quicken our hunger and thirst after the realm above. Here we can have the world, there we shall have Christ. Here is a life of longing, there is assurance without suspicion. Here are vain comforts, more burdens than benefits, but there is joy without sorrow, comfort without suffering, love without inconsistency, and rest without weariness. So, Lord, give us to know that heaven is all love, where the eye affects the heart and the continual viewing of thy beauty keeps the soul in continual transport of delight. And give us to know that heaven is all peace, where error and pride, rebellion and passion raise no head. And give us to know that heaven is all joy. It's the end of all believing and fasting, praying, mourning, weeping, watching, fearing, and dying. And Lord, lead us to this place soon. In Christ's name, amen.